So today's story that we look at in Judges is like a good day like that. It's something that you do wonder, why can't they keep this going? Why can't they keep having this kind of faith? But more so, there's something I hope this morning we see that you look at this day and say, there's something here for us that makes us want to keep going. That's the point. All right, so we'll look at three, uh, three thoughts um, here this morning. We're going to look at the women, and we're going to look at the, uh, the weakness. We're going to look at weakness, and we're going to look at a window. We, uh, women, weakness, window. Let's pray. Father, um, as we dive into this, these two chapters here that we're reflecting on, would you Help us to um, be convicted. Would you enrich our view and give us a biblical view and of uh, womanhood as we glance at that this morning? Would you grant us um, a window, Father, into just the hope that we have in you? And, uh, Father, as we come to this time, there are many of us who um, are humbled by life and need a reminder, need a uh, reminder. Uh, something to tell us to keep going. Uh, we're facing many things that we need to know why can we keep going and, and for what reason. So would you speak to our mind and to our hearts and our hands? Um, would you uh, have mercy on me, uh, uh, a sinner, one uh, um, among sinners? And um, would you, uh, God, but would you, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate your word in a way that would give us great hope and convict us and teach us this morning. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, so where we are right now in the book in Judges, we're in a series and, uh, of that, and most of the people, a lot of the people in the church are studying the same parallel to Judges along with that. So they're coming in and having studied a lot of the passages that, we're looking, that I'll be preaching on today. And uh, so we're looking at the story of Deborah and uh, a couple of others. I'll tell you who they are in a second. And it's really chapters 4 and 5. We're addressing that. So we'll be skipping over 5. Kevin won't be starting with 5. We're looking at chapters 4 and 5. We didn't read all of it, but I'll catch you up on some of it. But chapter 4 is sort of the historical kind of narrative of the event of Deborah's life and a couple of the judges, another judge and a woman. That's a, a prose. And if you think of it, chapter 5 is a song that her and Barak, the other person mentioned in her story, sing. So it's a poem. And, the, and the, chapter 4 gives us a uh, sort of what happened, the information that happens. Chapter 5 is sort of their singing of, to the glory of God and behind the scenes of what really they felt. And you get a little richer story. We're not, I'll bring that to bear. We can't look at all of it this morning. But but there's chapter 4 is a prose in a sense. Chapter 5 is a poem. And so let me look at verse 1 through 3, give you a little bit more context here. Uh, we didn't read this. Sarah didn't read this. But here's what you need to know. As we come into Judges, you'll see in verse 1 that, the, uh, that again, it says again, this is a cycle that God's people will go through, through in, in Judges. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after the previous judge had helped them. And they had spiraled. So there's this, this sort of pattern, not sort of, there is a pattern where God's people keep spiraling away from God, and yet God is faithful to them. Think of it this way. We summarize that God is, is a covenant keeper, but man is a covenant breaker. 
and God keeps rescuing his people. That's sort of this pattern we see, and it's a rough, some, can get very rough throughout the book of Judges as we look at that. But notice the pattern is they, they uh, relapse or they have that, then you'll see the Lord sort of brings retribution to them. He sells them to an evil king there in verse 2, and then they cry out in the midst of it, and it's sort of some repentance. And oftentimes it's just like, give us relief. Things are so bad. And the pattern goes, and then he sends them a judge. Today we'll be looking at Deborah, and then eventually the next week they'll pattern back. But this morning, we'll be looking at Deborah. And here's the people we're looking at. The good people, the good guys in our stories in chapters 4 and 5 are Deborah, Barak, and Jael. All right? Two women and a man. Barak is the man there. They're the good guys in our story. The bad guys are Jabin, who's a king. He's not mentioned much. And then Sisera, uh, who's in basically the general of the evil army. He's the bad guys. And, uh, and his mother is mentioned at the end of chapter 5. And you'll see why I highlighted her. Those are the good guys and the bad guys in our story. You see that? And then... Uh, so now I want to pause. We didn't, I didn't want to read all of them, but I want to tell you the rest of chapter 4, J.L., the woman who we learn about her. And let me tell you her story. Notice when we read this morning, we finished with this general. He's defeated uh, by God's army, and he runs away. He gets off of his chariot, and he runs away. Well, he runs to a place who is an ally. There's a king, and Jael, it's her husband, had made a peace treaty with the bad king, uh, Jabin. So he scatters off. He's running from the battle. And uh, he finds this woman, J.L., in her place, which is far away from everyone else. He goes into her tent. Normally, you would have gone into the man's tent because the man, her husband, would have been the place. But some think he's maybe hiding. Maybe they won't check in her tent. But he goes in this woman, J.L.'s tent. And um, she calls him into the tent. And he comes in, and he's been running. The battle's over, and he is lost, and he's running away to hide. As he comes in, he asks for water, and she says no. She gives him some milk. From Milskin, this, this, the text tells us. She wraps him in a blanket, all right? Then, while he falls asleep, she takes a tent nail, a tent peg from her tent, gets a hammer, sneaks over to him. The passage actually says softly walks over to him, takes it, drives it, the nail into his head, and kills him. And that's like every... Teenage boy's favorite story in the Bible. What? You know? <laughs> she did it. She drives in it and kills him. And so um, the good general, which is Barak, you'll see there the passage I read, read for. He says, and behold, he was pursuing him. He couldn't find him. He gets to her. She sees Barak and says, come over here. Let me show you what's happened, basically. And she see there, and Barak was pursuing Sisera, the bad general. Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come, and I'll show you the man whom you're seeking. And she went to her tent, and there Sisera is dead with the tent peg in his temple. All right, so we have Jael and Deborah and Barak, and they see all the players in the rest of the story. Now, let's get into our outline and look um, at the woman, the story of the woman. And I want to highlight that as we think about these two women. This is a beautiful picture into womanhood, and, we get, and, and it seems like God really wants us to see what they're doing right? Um, and, and to understand them. And I think because this is a historical narrative that part of the reason it's hard, like when you, when you teach, uh, preach from those, it's just telling a story. You can't just sort of exposit it verse by verse. You've got to sort of fit it in the story. What I want to do is in this moment, I want to tell you the story, briefly tell you the story of women in the Bible. I want to do that so that you will see the beauty of what Deborah and Jael are, are doing. So they can bring the context to that. I'm going to trace this through that very quickly. But I want to do it for that reason. Then we'll look at the weakness and the window. Those won't be as big, but, but, but will make more sense when you see the story 
of women. So let's begin here, and I want you to see that so you can see and get a right understanding of how beautiful this is, how God has used them when we see the story of women and womanhood in the Bible. We'll begin in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, 26 and 20, 20a, you see that we learn that God says, let us make man in our image, that's mankind, and he makes, in verse 27, he makes both male and female. So in the beginning, Genesis teaches us that the glory of God and that men and women, one is not better than the other. That's the purpose of Genesis 1. They're both equal in their standing. They're both equal in the commands that God gives and their authority over the creation. They're equal in their value and their glory. And listen, so they're side by side, and that's what Genesis 1 tells us. And so listen, you want to know the image of what God is? If you have all men in the room, you don't have the full image of who God is. And if you have all women, you don't have the full image of who God is. It takes both. The triune God makes that, and women are equal with men in that, and uh, in the glory. Now, we go to Genesis 2, and so the Genesis 2 zooms in to tell us the story of man and fe- male and female, man and woman, and it tells us the differences. We see their sameness in verse chapter 1, but in Genesis 2, the Lord differentiates the differences in who they are. They're not exactly the same. They're not equivalent. They're different. Same in their glory and purpose and authority, but different. And we see that the order of way God makes man and first, we learn in Genesis 2, when he makes him, he says in Genesis 2.18, he says it's not good for man to be alone. Now, that's interesting. Without there any sin in the world, it's not good to be alone. Aloneness was bad before there was sin. And so you see the power of this in the, in the perfect world God is making that. And so he, um, the animals or not, uh, he names the animals and the animals come, but God, he says it's not good for him to be alone. He brings him, notice what the verse says there, is I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now, in the secular world, you see that, even a lot of Christians see that helper and they think, oh gosh, is the woman supposed to be a maid? He's just supposed to, he's the guy doing everything and she comes along? No, that's not the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is ezer, rooted in the idea and the nature of savior. So whenever you would see uh, the idea of, uh, that the help, this word is used all throughout the Psalms that God would say, uh, uh, Israel needs a, needs a helper, a savior. So man is not alone. And you see, what a powerful word. He's not alone, and the solution is one who would save him. So she's made a second in that. And so a mighty savior would be the word for that. So here she is. She's made for him. And you notice she's taken from his rib in Genesis 2. It's not good for him to be alone. And God brings the woman to man. And then he sings a song over her. I mean, this is romantic. And he brings, this is a marriage place. This is the first relationship we see made. And he sings with her. And notice the relationship that man is made first. And he is declaring what's true over her. And she is relishing in that. And she just, he says, this is who you are. And this he says, and I'm so glad you're here. And so in verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now you're like, well, why did that tell the woman to do that? As it rooms into that, what we're learning is that Genesis is some anywhere from between 1,500 to 3,000 years later that Moses actually writes the Pentateuch. And manhood and womanhood has gone haywire for years. Most of God's people are having polygamy and, and, uh, and, the, and the patriarchs of the faith. It's not going well with men and women. And it doesn't go bad. We'll see why in a second. But what God is doing in Genesis 1, when he would have said that male and female are image bearers, a woman would have thought there's no way. We're just property in this world. I'm an image bearer of God. Actually, that language was only used for kings. Only kings, Roman kings and their gods were connected to the, to the gods. Only the kings were the image bearers, not regular everyday Joes, especially not women in the cultures. 
So in Genesis 1, it's the raising up of all men. And like the regular slaves and God's people, like, I'm an image bearer of the king? Are you kidding me? And the women are there too. Now, notice here, the woman is told, isn't say that she leaves and cleaves. That would have been understood. The telling of the man, the man leaves too. They do the same thing. You see the scriptures are elevating women. They're holding them high. And that's where it, it brings them to that. And they shall both leave, and they were there. Now, it is a... Um, uh, <clears throat> um, a difficult part comes up. But one other thing I want to say, Genesis 1 crescendos to the creation of human beings. It starts darkness. Most theologians say it crescendos there. Guess what Genesis 2 crescendos to? Although the man is made first, which shows that he is a weight bearer, that he will carry the weight and the authority, not rule in some domineering way, but he'll be the weight bearer. But then Genesis 2 crescendos to the creation of the woman, just like Genesis 1. She's the glory of the man. And from there, you even see God making them equal in the sense that although man was made first, and his role will be to bear the weight of the world, and he has a unique strength, that his strength will be to use, uh, his difference is that the woman will live uh, will also bring the glory and the beauty of that, and she will uniquely bring something that he can't bring, and she's a life giver. Out of the differences between man and female, that's probably, I would say, at the end of the day, the main differences between a male and female without splicing it out further than that. The man was designed to be a weight bearer. Even the design of his body. I can bench, well, not as much as I used to, but Brittany will never be able to bench what I can. The strongest man in the wo woman in the world will never match the strongest man. There's something about his, uh, his weight-bearing, but it's not a lord over. Notice he's still beside her. And hers, her body and everything is her to bring life. He was alone, and she's a life-giver. The whole body of a woman is designed to give life, and her role is to do that. So it crescendos to her in the Genesis 2, and he sees her, and he celebrates, and he's like, yes, here she is, and she's beautiful to him. Now, when, when um, the story continues after this, the fall comes. And notice what happens in Genesis 3. As we learn here, in Genesis 3, the story of the woman, the serpent, more crafty, he goes after her. And he decides to go after the woman first. And probably because she should have been protected. Because there was the weight bearer guy that protected her, but he goes after her. And the thing that he makes her realize, he's crafty. He says, did God really say? Let me just interpret what he's doing. One of the things he's doing, he's saying, maybe you're not as valuable to God as you think he is, you are, because he's lying to you. Now think about the last place she was in Genesis 2. She just comes out of the place where the last thing we learn in Genesis 2 is a man is speaking and it's true. And he says, you're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He sings a love song to her and he says, you're of great value. Now Satan comes and he says, you're of no value. And she begins to wobble, if you will, buckle under that. They eat of the forbidden fruit. And they uh, both fall, and they're separated. And now men and women, they cover themselves, and she moves away from Adam, and there's a struggle. Then the curse comes, which is beautiful to know this. I want you to know this because it makes everything else rich about judges this morning. There's this phrase when God speaks to the serpent and then to the woman. He says, you'll have difficulty in childbearing. But there's this phrase here that really is important. He says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
All right? I know I've preached it before. I'm going to keep coming back to this because it's important to understand the relationship between male and female. And there's this difficult, difficult struggle. The word there for her to desire, I think, is only used one other place in the Old Testament. And it's the word next in Genesis 4 where it tells Cain and Abel, it says, sin is, has a desire for you. It's crouching at your door. Sin desires you. It's a negative sense. And, she's, and so she, notice what it says, will have a desire for her husband, males in general, that will be destroying. And we believe in two ways it sort of plays itself out. Remember, now she doesn't feel she first was cherished and loved and had great value worth was the glory. Satan gets in between that, and now she'll want it, and she'll look for it in the wrong place. Let me just pause there and say, God in his wisdom gives a woman a negative desire, I think, in his sovereignty, and looks to man so that she can't get it from man so that she'll go to him one day. The true, the true Adam, the better Adam. But she has a desire, and her desire is, she begins to think, if I could just have the love of a man, my life will be fulfilled. Or she will desire his position. Something about her relationship with a man is that that will be the thing that will satisfy her. Now notice, look at him. Now he's got strength, remember? He's a weight bearer. And look what he does. It says in the negative sense, he will rule over her. He will use his extremities to rule over her. This is a terrible thing. So he will take his strength and he will either bring her under oppression, right? Patriarchal and women are under oppressed. That's what we see in the Bible. Or he'll run away because he can't handle the pressure. He runs away. So you either have absent men or you have present men who are exploiting. So then you have a woman, you wonder why, why does she need, why will a girl go to the extra mile to have something of a guy? Why do they, ask Bruce Petrie every day and his family court judge, why didn't she leave him? Because there's a curse in play. The thing that's most glorious about her is thwarted. That's a terrible formula. By the way, you face that every day in your life whether you know it or not. And just so you know, I don't want us to walk away saying patriarchal or matriarchal. Which one is Dennis is trying to tell us is the most bad? They're both bad. Woman is contributing to the fall just like man is. When a woman gives in and has a desire for a man or him or her husband in a way, that contributes to the fall, especially when the man rules over. It's both doing that. As a matter of fact, that's why I wanted to tell you about the mother of Sisera. Look what it says at the end of Judges 5.28. She was worried that her son had not come away from the battle. And it tells us in Judges 5 that the mom of Sisera, the, the guy who had the temple, you know, that she jailed drew it through his head. She's looking for her husband to come, or for her son to come home. And the princesses are wanting this king to come home or this uh, general to come home. Look what it says. Out of the window she peered and the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long coming? Why did he come home from this battle, basically? The princesses say to her, Indeed, she answers herself, have they not found and divided the spoil, a womb of two for every man? They said, hey, he's just getting ready all the, the plundering of the battle. And look what the plundering is. One or two wombs of the women for the more men. Even the women, because they are so caught up in their men, are perpetuating the very problem that it's okay for other women to be brought and made slaves in their country. Do you see that? It's a desperate, desperate pattern. But there are women in the Bible all throughout, like Deborah, 
who God uses to overcome that pattern, who doesn't function in that rut. And she's one of them. They were great. Ashna, earlier, I mentioned her last week in our story, she crawled, she's the one of Caleb's, uh, uh, Othniel's wife who has great faith. But Shipra and Pua, anybody ever heard of them in the Bible? The midwives who saved. Actually, all of Egypt was saved because of the faithfulness and the faith of two midwife women who couldn't have babies, who stood up to the emperor. Miriam, the sister of Moses. Holda, the great prophetess to Josiah. They had great faith, and she stayed there. Mary, the mother of, of Jesus. Mary Magdalene, those who ran with Jesus, those that, who had the first testimony of, God, of Jesus. Nobody would believe the woman in that day, but they were the ones who did it. The women are, te- are there. And notice that we get to Deborah. And you need to celebrate when you see Deborah, and you and I see her this morning. When we see Deborah, we should say, wow, look what God is doing in her. The curse is being overcome. Look at her life. In verse 4, now Deborah, the fact she's being named, the scriptures name her. Women were just property. She's being named. Deborah is there, a prophetess. She had a standing among God's people. What was a prophetess? A prophetess did speak on behalf of God to the people. And she had a role. And look, all the tribes, probably all of them, were coming up the hill. It tells us the hill she was on. It's probably a hill in Ephraim that they were coming to her to hear from her. Now, there's been debate. The more I looked on it earlier in the week, I thought her judging and ruling. But probably what she was doing was giving spiritual discernment to the people as a prophetess and hearing their woes and everything that was going on. What I didn't point out earlier in our sermon was in, is that it said this about the oppression. If you go back to verse 3 in our chapter. It said that it added to the cruelty of this King Jabin. It said it was, it, it, the scriptures let us know that this time, this 20 years of oppression for God's people was more cruel than it's ever been. So she's among this 20 years of oppression, and they're looking to her. They're looking to her. I mean, look at the beauty of she is. She is giving life when there's no hope. And she's a rescuer. She's rescuing them. And then look how she relates to men in faith. It tells us that she has a husband there. It's just like mentions his name and her name. There they are side by side, just as it should be. Equal in their glory and their name. It tells us something about what she's doing. She talks to a general, uh, talks to uh, Barak, and just summons him. She's faithful. She calls as they go into the battle. Later in verse 4, or later in the chapter, or later in the chapter, she, um, she, they're about to go into battle, and she gives a pep speech and reminds them of what God is saying. During oppression that she is leading, summoning, connected to God, speaking on top of that, it's a beautiful picture. The curse is being overcome in her life. And so is J.L. So here you have Deborah in this, this unique role that she finds herself basically the, leading all of Israel, the tribes, and they're coming to her and calling the military. And then you have J.L. who is in just regular everyday life is faithful to God. What a beautiful picture of all of life. She just uses what she has, and probably the women built the tents in those days. She takes the tent thing and thinks, in order to execute God's judgment, she's a part of that. How beautiful is that? So as I I land that plane with the women in the story of that, and we land with with her and J.L., Deborah and J.L., I just want to say, without getting into all the laborious technicalities of womanhood and, and manhood and the church and all that, 
just, just know this, these two thoughts. Some of us have too narrow and limited view of what women should be. It's way too narrow. And then some of us have way too liberal of a view that goes beyond what woman is. That, that when you say woman can do anything a man can do, they're just not equivalent in that. And so you've got to, so where do you go with those questions? You go to the scriptures. And there's more to that. I'd love to talk to you more about where you land on all those things. But at least hear those two things about the women. Don't have too narrow of you. Don't have too proud of you. Go to the scriptures. Even in our passage, she's directing the army. She's leading the army. She tells and is in charge. And the general submits to her and comes to her. And yet we don't think she goes into the battle. So even that begins to show like fullness and glory and yet limits, not overextend. I, we got to figure that out. But would you at least hear those principles about womanhood? You either have a too limited or you have a too unlimited. Submit to the scriptures. Wrestle there. And young girls and women, I hope you look at Deborah and J.L. and think, glory. Glorious. So, now, the weakness part of it. I told you these two were much shorter. But there's a weakness story. And the weakness is really all three of the main characters, the good characters. I told you about Deborah, right? I mean, she's dealing with a desperate nation. And she think about her life. Within Even the Jews were patriarchal, and it would have been hard for her to move up. But somehow she overcomes all these, these things. And she, in weakness and not much traction, becomes great within the kingdom of God's people at that point is leading them. That's great weakness. She had to overcome so many things. She didn't have the strength or the might. She's the only judge that we learn about her wisdom and character and not about her might. It's an interesting thought. All the other judges we hear of their might. But then look at Barak and his weakness. It tells us this passage. He's the guy who ends up executing is the general. And he's facing 900 chariots. You've heard that before. And the Canaanites are that. That means like the tank versus bicycles. That's what it would have been like versus a tank versus bicycles. Like it's the technological development of the day. The scriptures want us to know that it was 900 chariots. It tells us twice in our passage. But he has to face it. And he's got to go into it. It is great weakness. As a general, he would have known, I know what they have, and God's told us to go. And she's telling us that God says this. That's what a prophetess does. She's saying go, but he's like, that's not a winnable battle if you look at it, right? Now, here's where I want to just exhort you, and there's a little bit of a difference in my personal opinion here. Many, and I used to think this, come to this passage, and they see this exchange that Barak has with Deborah. And he says, Barak said to her, if you, verse 8, I will go with you, I will go with you, but if you don't go with me, I'm, I'm not going to do it. All right? Now, some historically thought, well, he's a sissy, and he needed her to go with him. That's basically what most people historically see that. There's some argument for that. As I have studied it personally more, and I'm going to show you by the end, I really think that this is a positive view. Remember that golf shot that I hit well? And I'm like, this gives me hope. I think this is a hopeful window. And I think when he's coming to her, I think he's coming to her out of respect. I think he's coming to her because he honors her and knows that all of Israel looks to her. And I think that he, listen, the, Bible, the story of the Bible is not, hey, well, if a man can't do it, a woman's got to. This is the glory of Deborah. She is, God is lifting up a woman. He's not saying she's second best. Well, I guess we'll have to let her do it. No. I think the window here is beautiful. Here's another reason. Even he says, he says at the end of the passage, he says, um, at the verse there, he says, 
I'm not going to do it unless you come with me. Right? Now that sounds like I'm scared. Or she represents the presence of God to him. She's a prophetess. God has been speaking to the people. And he knows, I can't do this without God. It's actually a posture of humility, of dependence upon God. It's okay if we differ. I think that's, I lean that way towards that passage. It doesn't change much of the meaning. It doesn't change any of the meaning other than maybe a lesson. But I think he's honoring her. Listen, he is the only one mentioned in this story in the Hebrews Hall of Faith in in chapters 11. So he's exalted, all right? But then in chapter five, she's exalted, Deborah's exalted, called the mother of all of Israel. And then Jael is exalted, and she's called the most blessed woman among Israel. The same name that will be used that. So I think they're all three great stories. This is three great faiths. Here God's working, and he's using it. And Jael, her weakness is, imagine you're a woman, and I have, I'm not strong enough, there's a general coming in, this big guy, and she, <laughs> she needs to execute this, she's gonna kill him, and yet she's in a place of weakness. And yet she's faithful there. Here's just what I want you to get about weakness. What is your oppressed nation, hard circumstances like Deborah? What are your 900 chariots? Or what is your big, brawly general in your house of your life that you're scared to face? This seems like it's too much and too big. Each of these judges, or this story here, each of these three people were at a place of weakness. It just didn't seem possible. And yet Deborah rises up, Jael executes, and they do it. Which one are you? It reminds you, it should remind you of 2 Corinthians when Paul said this, read this passage with me. And he was talking about Christ. He said, my grace, or, um, in St. Corinthians, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Most of us face the battles and the big 900 chariots in our life, and we think we've got to be strong. But the gospel is counterintuitive. The way you and I face those are by becoming weak. And so if you were to come to me for counsel and say, what should I do in the face of this circumstance? Listen, I, I, I listed 20 small 900 chariots for me this week in my journaling. But if I'm a good pastor, what I will tell you is not gird up your loins. I would say become weak. We're scared to become weak. But it's in our weakness that his strength is made perfect and we resonate Christ. Why? Remember why? 
Why is this story about weakness? What is God showing us here? What is the window in? He's going to get all the glory. He's doing it all. (laughs) And part of our weakness makes sure that if we know we're weak, we give him praise and glory. Chapter 5 is Barak and Deborah singing a song in their weakness like, the glory be to God, glory be to the kings. Listen, our God is courageous. Our God is faithful. Our God is the most high king. Are you willing to become weak in the things you face so that his strength might be made perfect. So lastly, the window. And the window is this. So this is where I think looking into this story, there's a lot, so much to learn. Y'all learned so much more than what I'm telling you this morning. But I'm trying to give the big rocks here this morning. And the window is this. Notice that first remembers that when we're weak, the reason we become weak because that's when God is works and he gets the glory and all of a sudden we're relationally dependent on it. Remember his heartbroken. He's heartbroken and he wants to be near to you in this passage. And the way he, you get near to him is by being weak and come to him and say, you're God and I'm not. But look, it tells us in the passage, and she said, this is talking about Deborah, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera. So who's the one that wins the battle? The Lord does. Verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and his armies before Barak as they're going down the mountain from Tabor to fight this. The Lord even brings rain, we learn in chapter 5, to make the chariots mud up in the desert by the river. And he does it. It's him who does it. And he wins it. And verse 23, so on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people. It's him who does it. But here's, here's the window, an even more clear picture of the window I think this story lets us see. It is that God does it. And I'm so thankful that y'all were in the study this week, realized that the lady who's, uh, who wrote our study book, her name escapes me right now, I'm sorry, but who wrote our study book, she reminded us of Genesis 3.15. And she went back to that place. You remember when Jael drove the tent peg through the head of Sisera? Does that sound like a promise from anywhere? A symbolism, a reminder of a promise from anywhere? In Genesis 3.15, remember when the covenant was established, the covenant that you and I are built upon, that our hope is built upon, he says that the seed of the woman, in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the serpent will strike the hill of the seed of the woman, but the woman's seed, Jesus, will crush the Satan. And in this moment, just this window moment in Judges, we get this picture, just a reminder. It looks like everything's going sideways, but we get the picture. There's a reminder. There's foreshadowing. There's letting us know that God will will conquer, he will do it, and he reminds us of the promise that he made way back when, that I will crush the hill of the serpent. Listen, as I wrestled around with that and looked at that this week, I mean, it is interesting, guys. Did you know that our story this week, that there were two trees mentioned? The tree that Deborah was under, and actually at the beginning, the tree where J.L. and her family's tent was placed? Hmm. Two trees. Does that sound like any other place? There's a guy who eats something and it brings destruction and death to him. The scriptures let us know when she strove that thing through as it went into the ground. Guess what it tells us Adam was made from? The ground. And men and women 
in this moment, in this brief story in Judges, are side by side, honoring one another, equal in their glory. It just has to be a window, just for a moment, to remind us that God is saying, I have this. The thing that keeps us coming back is our hope is built upon that. In the middle of the scriptures here, he reminds us of the story that's going on. And you and I know it to be more true than they do, and anybody else does, because Jesus actually did die and crushed the head of the serpent. And we are more sure now than ever that the victory is won. And we will be with him in that. So everything the cross tells us even more in that. May, may you let the heart, women, may you be exalted. People explore and walk away from here this morning and say, what weakness, I'm, what, am I, what am I facing and scared to become weak in? But then lastly, let yourself remember this story. And remember, we have great hope. The head has been crushed of the serpent. And our end is secure. Let's pray. God, as we come and sing and respond this morning, would you uh, let your people um, let us believe and truly believe and trust that you are a God who is faithful. And it, in the midst of all of things going haywire, would you help us to see through the window that you are faithful and that things get accomplished because of you and that you would remind us that there is a covenant in place that will be accomplished in a storyline that will end well for your people no matter what. In the midst of that, I pray that you would raise up more Deborahs and Jaels and Baraks who will trust you as they face their and enter into their weakness and trust you. You would build them up. We need, I pray for more of those. I pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, restore, overcome the curse of Genesis 3.15 in our lives where the woman denies, will desire the man in a way and he will rule over her. Would you begin to give us the faith to push that back and see it in Lord and that it can be done in you. We pray that you would do that in us and thank you for our time in worship this morning. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.